We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Just over 10 years ago, I had my first conversation about the idea that would become Strava with serial entrepreneurs Mark Ganey and Michael Horvath. They talked to me about their bold objective of building the world's largest community of athletes. Since then, they've done that, touching over 90 million athletes and logging over 5 billion activities across more than 30 sports in virtually every country in the world. While subscriptions have always been a part of Strava, in the past year, they've moved some of their most popular features behind the paywall and introduced a bunch of new features for paying subscribers. I recently interviewed David Lorsch, Strava's CRO for the inaugural D2C Summit, a new conference I co-created with Global Media Association, FIP. And I want to share that conversation with you here on the podcast. We discussed how Strava determined what should be free and what should be paid as they built a subscription business around a social platform and how to guide members to make the most out of their membership. Welcome, David. Can you briefly explain what Strava is and and who it's for? Sure. So as you said, Strava is a social platform for athletes. We believe we're the largest sports community in the world with over 85 million athletes in 195 different countries. And we call anybody who joins Strava an athlete. Our philosophy is that if you sweat, you're an athlete. And essentially, our mobile apps and our website are there to connect active people every day. Our goal is to give people simple, fun ways to stay motivated. And a lot of it is around being able to compete against yourself and other people if you're not, let's say, in the same place at the same time. And we believe Strava is definitely for all types of athletes, all sports, and regardless of what kind of device or digital fitness service you may be using. So Strava is very much a platform, not just for athletes, but for sort of the entire ecosystem around digital fitness as well. Now, can you share the original goal of great community and great experience for members? How has that affected your business model decision making? being a community. Sure. So I think I would start with our mission, which has really been unchanged since the beginning. And that is essentially, we say, to connect athletes to what motivates them and help them find their personal best. And so our orientation has always been around community and connecting people together to help them stay active. Our philosophy is very much that people keep other people active. And really, there's like nothing more motivating than being able to share your sport and your athletic experiences with other people who are engaging around it. And so the whole idea of Strava is it should be better if your friends are on it. And we want to make it really easy for people to get their activities into Strava since they're sort of the lifeblood of Strava. We call them our atomic unit. And so that definitely led us to wanting to make Strava very easy to join, very frictionless, and you know, ultimately deciding that you know, we should have a freemium type model where at least you know, it was very easy to join Strava for free. I think the second thing that's worth pointing out is that one of our other core values is authenticity. And we really believe that, you know, it's very important, not surprisingly, to build things that athletes will use and that, you know, athletes feel very natural using. And so that means we've really leaned heavily towards a model where our primary customer is the athlete, which led us in the earliest days to introduce 
a subscription as our main business model uh, so that the athlete was, you know, our paying customer, you know, certainly other social platforms or social networks that, you know, were primarily ad-based. Got it. So subscriptions have always been a part of Strava, but along the way, you've had partnerships and sponsorships. How do you think about the role of those different constituents in the context of the bigger community and how they support your mission? I think it's a great question. So as I said, subscriptions has always been our main business back since we introduced it to 2010 and the company started in 2009. So it's been around since the beginning. We've definitely experimented with other revenue models along the way. We had a commerce business at one point, and we have had different kinds of digital sponsorship where we partner with brands who also effectively are our customer. We still have a business there today. I think what we've come back to is that it really has to serve the athlete first and foremost. And if there's an opportunity to build something that's great for an athlete and then bring a partner or brand into the experience where they get some value out of it, and then we're able to create something at the intersection of it, essentially. You know, that could be an interesting model for us and it can be complementary to our subscription business. So the main way we do that today is we have a product we call Challenges in Strava, which is essentially the idea that Strava or a partner can challenge you or a group of athletes to achieve an individual or collective goal. And so we now have sponsor challenges where brands like New Balance or Lululemon will sponsor a challenge in their own name and, you know, challenge our athletes to a goal. And we consistently hear from our athletes that they love these challenges, that, you know, they find them very motivational. We know the brands that are sponsoring them are also getting value from them, but they're 100% you know, opt-in. And it's all about giving the athlete the choice about whether they want to engage or participate as opposed to putting an ad you know, in front of them, regardless of whether they wanted it to be there or not. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. You know, We have a lot of media organizations on today. And one of the challenges is how to balance the needs of different audiences, of your sponsors, or your advertisers, or your partners with those of your core community, your readers, your listeners. And I think what's really interesting about Strava is that, and hopefully I'm saying this correctly, while you've you know, had many different kinds of organizations and individuals involved in your community, it's always been about athletes at the very center. Very much. And that is our core belief is that the athlete is first and everything else has to work for them. So you've always had subscriptions. Before 2019, can you share kind of what you got for being a subscriber versus free or why people were subscribing? And then also why some, I think, very loyal members chose not to pay to subscribe? I would say before 2019, like we were very focused on community growth. And we were really trying to get the biggest flywheel going we could in terms of people joining Strava and sharing activities. And so by sort of 2019, you know, we'd grown from a product that had sort of really good product market fit with Cyclists, which was where we started, to about 50 million athletes were on Strava, I think, around the end of 2019. And cycling and running, which are our two largest individual sports today, you know, they were equal in size at that point, but we had a significant portion of our athletes sharing other sports among the 32 different types of sports that we supported. And generally, the way we thought about subscription at that point was that if there was a feature that was sort of single player in nature, where it was something that allowed you to understand your own activity better. For example, we have a feature called relative effort, which allows you to understand how each individual activity you do contributes to your overall fitness and to sort of track your fitness over time. And so that would be something we would put into our subscription because it was very much something that was not social, didn't sort of relate to the network itself. And I think what we found, you know, we were sort of at the end of 2019, when we sort of actually talked to our athletes about why they subscribed or didn't subscribe, if you actually ask the people who subscribed, they would generally tell you, I subscribe because I love Strava. 
not because of some individual feature or set of features that they were paying for. And on the flip side, if you asked our free athletes why they didn't subscribe, they would say, well, I love Strava, but honestly, the free product is so good. Why would I ever bother to subscribe? And they really couldn't tell you about what the value proposition was that was behind the paywall. And you know, at that time, it was very clear they loved Strava. We actually had an NPS score, I think, in the mid-70s. So you know, it was very clear to us that there was a lot of value in Strava as a whole, but we didn't have a clear value proposition and a clear paywall distinction that was really you know, bringing those people who love Strava across the paywall. And so we sort of set out to say, you know, what you're paying for on Strava should be what you love about Strava. And that got us to a shift in our paywall, which I know you're going to want to talk about. So. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go right into that. So at the end of 2019, you made a decision to double down on subscriptions. And I know that there were a lot of discussions as you thought about the right way to make subscriptions more valuable, more useful for your most engaged members. Can you bring me back to kind of, I don't know, November, December 2019, and some of the biggest questions and risks that were on your mind as you thought about how to implement this decision, what paywall models you considered, and then I'd love to get to where you ended up as well. Yeah. So as I said, we sort of looked at where we were, and I think you know we felt very strongly that we had something inside of Strava that people would pay for, but it really wasn't part of our subscription at that point in time. And so we really set out to sort of think about how do we want to configure our paywall? And we spent a lot of time looking at other digital subscription businesses. I think we looked at 30 different companies, you know, everything from Tinder to the New York Times. We generally sort of viewed or sort of broke down the world into three models that we sort of saw as prevalent. The first was kind of what we called the add-on model, which was very much where Strava was at that point in time. And that's, you know, the idea that you have a great core product and there's these, you know, sort of incremental premium services that are on top of it that you subscribe to. Very, you know, LinkedIn is probably the best example of that, I think, among companies that are similar to Strava. And then there was sort of a middle ground, which we called the freemium model. Obviously, freemium is used very broadly, but it was sort of like the idea that you have a core use case and it's really split right down the middle in terms of what's free and paid. And so there's a real, if you really want to take advantage of that core use case, you sort of have to become a subscriber. And Spotify is probably the best example of that, where you know their core use case is obviously listening to music. And if you really love music, at some point, you're going to subscribe because of you know the advantages you have as a subscriber you know in that model and the last one was looking at sort of a more limited access or hard cap type model which is kind of what you see in like a dropbox or even the new york times and that was a model we did not feel was a good fit for strava because it really limited potentially people's ability to participate in the network and contribute activities so we really sort of ended up in this middle ground of freemium and we realized that some of our core competitive features and the most prominent one was something we call segments and segment leaderboards you know, made sense to go behind the paywall. And since that was a very iconic and core feature of Strava, certainly there was a risk to us because we knew people loved it. And it was something people, you know, probably would pay for, but other people were going to be potentially very unhappy that this thing that they had loved and contributed to building, as we can talk about, you know, was now going to be something that was required. You had to have a subscription to really participate in. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that question of, you know, both putting a beloved feature, you know, behind the paywall in this case, segments, but also this issue that when you have a strong community, which you had invested in for several years, you build this huge, very engaged community that really felt a strong sense of belonging. One of the risks that we see with strong communities is that people feel a sense of ownership. And certainly when something changes and goes behind a paywall, it feels like the promise or the implied contract has been changed, even if that promise was never there. So how did you manage the relationships, knowing that some of your most loyal and engaged 
members were going to be disappointed, hurt, outraged that you were taking something beloved and putting it behind the paywall? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing was we wanted to make sure we had pretty clear principles about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And so the example in the case of segments was, you know, it was something where we knew that our athletes had contributed to them because segments are something that our athletes actually create. So our athletes define a set of road or, you know, path or something like that and essentially determine that's an area they want to compete on. And then from then ever going forward, everybody who runs or rides or hikes or walks in that segment can compare their own performance or their performance against everybody else. But the idea was that the real value in segments, and this is the thing we had to sort of clarify in our own heads, is actually the competition between the athletes and the analysis that we can put on top of it and what Strop is bringing to it. And so while the athletes had contributed to creating them, the real value you know, was in, in sort of what Strava put on top of them. And so we sort of broke the world up into like a free versus paid kind of distinction in terms of our philosophy. And basically our view was that contributing activities, browsing routes, connecting to other athletes, that sort of category was kind of free. But analyzing your own activity, participating in a route, using a route that we created or suggested for you, or actually competing as opposed to just connecting with athletes was going to be on the paid side. So that was the rubric that we decided to move towards. And I think your story or your question about what was the fear, or the you know, the sort of the reaction from the community was really interesting because, well, we'll get to what the community reaction was, but I think going into that, we were very aware of this phenomena of like when something is free and you make it paid, it's very different than when you have something that is paid and you increase the price. So I don't know if you've heard this story about the Red Cross and donuts during World War II, but it's a story that I discovered when we were going through this paywall change. And the short version of it is basically during World War II, the GIs were given free donuts by the American Red Cross. And at some point, I think because the British Red Cross you know, was actually asking the British soldiers to pay for their coffee and donuts, the U.S. Department of Defense decided that the American Red Cross equalize the situation and make the GIs pay for it. And so for many years later, I think it was like 50 plus years later, you talk to veterans and they would still say, you know, they were angry about what the Red Cross had done because they were charging for donuts. And so this mentality of something is free and you move it into this new category of paid is a very different thing. And we were very, very wary that that was going to upset the apple cart going into it. Yeah, I'd love that. I've never heard that story and I love it. I'm fascinated by the whole psychology of free. There's an excellent book, I think it's called Free, A Brief History of a Radical Price by Chris Anderson that gets into a lot of the details about how, you know, if something is free, people feel completely differently than if you even charge one penny for it. So your point about being really clear about why you're charging for things that used to be free, I think is really important for the audience. You know, a lot of people are thinking about what should be free, what should be paid, and the importance of having a philosophy. And then I think the second point is the importance of communicating clearly what you're doing and why you're doing it, I think is critical. So let me move forward. So May of 2020, in the heart of the global COVID-19 pandemic, you announced that you were moving a bunch of new features as well as a few very popular existing ones behind a $5 a month paywall. What was the reaction to that, if you can remember? And what was maybe unexpected as a result of the timing of that decision being right in the middle of COVID? Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll hit the timing and then I can talk about the reaction. I mean, the timing was really interesting because we started talking about the end of 2019 when we planned this. And we had a plan to make this change in April. 
And so we were working, you know, very hard on the product changes that were underneath this. And obviously, you know, early March, the whole world changed in a really dramatic way that was obviously very hard and tragic for many people. But we were looking at it from a Strava's perspective and just saying like, here, we've got this plan to make a paywall shift. And, you know, that's asking people to pay for something that they haven't been paying for, which, you know, at this point in time, obviously, the economy was also somewhat in a free fall. And then we were also watching what was going on with people's own behavior in the pandemic. And one of the things that we wanted to do as part of this paywall shift was not just move things that were free to paid, but also add value to the existing subscription by bringing new features to it as well. And so it wasn't just about, you know, moving the deck chairs, if you will, it was really about showing our subscribers that we were going to continue to invest behind them. And that if they became a subscriber, you know, it wasn't just, you know, moving things around, but we were going to continue to improve and invest behind them. And so the thing that we were actually launching right before the paywall shift was a feature we called suggested routes, which was the idea that if you're anywhere in the world, you know, you can find a route precisely the place you are, that's the exact distance that you want to ride, run, walk, hike, et cetera. And so like a classic use case of that would be, I go to a hotel in a city, you know, where I've never been and, and I want to go for a five mile run. And, you know, we'll typically go down to the lobby and they ask for like, hey, can you give me the little map that shows me the run? Yeah. And they show you and you end up in the parking lot yeah, or you something. you get lost and they give you the thing <laughs> and it's a three mile run. You want to go for a five mile run or you want to go for a seven mile run or whatever. And it doesn't really work. Here's this beautiful, elegant solution where we can give people the exact distance they want. You know, they can define whether they want to go hilly road, flat road, et cetera. Suddenly, you know, the idea of even suggesting people that they should you know, be out exploring the world feels very direct conflict to what's going on outside. I mean, we've got people telling us that we're on lock, strict lockdown and we, you know, we shouldn't even leave our own house. In that specific case, we made the decision like, we're not going to market this feature, but we're going to release it into the world because we built it. We let it out, I think, in late March. But we were obviously looking at the broader picture of the paywall shift too, coming up to this April sort of deadline that we'd set for ourselves. And I think as we looked at what was going on in the world, we saw first very, very strict lockdowns in places like France and Italy, where people literally were not supposed to leave their house at all, except to go shopping or go to the doctor. And that was, we could see in our own data. I mean, activity was just plummeting, at least outdoor activity. Like Obviously, indoor activity was going up, but it wasn't near compensating for that. But we started to see a really interesting thing going on in some of the countries like the US and the UK, where things were not as strict and people were actually starting to discover well, I'm working from home, you know, really tough time, you know, for lots of different reasons. I want to get out outside and explore and walk around, take a walk, maybe ride my bike. And suddenly you had this real huge uptick in activity and people actually getting outside. And so we sort of looked at that and we we're actually meeting people in a way in the moment, which is they're looking for motivation. They're looking for ways to connect with other people around their activity and so this is actually not the wrong time to be making this change. It certainly has its risks, but I think that we can go ahead and do this. And so we ended up making that shift in May. So since then, it seems like it's been quite a success. People seem to have responded well to the subscription offer. You've been adding, I think I saw late last year, you know, you've been adding more than 2 million athletes a month to the community and you know, dozens of new features for athletes as part of this deeper experience competing and engaging with your data through the subscription. So what has changed, if anything, as you've become even more focused on how to make the kind of deeper benefits even more engaging and meaningful? Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost is just our orientation now is really about putting our subscribers first and especially showing those people that have shown Strava they love us enough to pay us money that we love them back. And, you know, obviously, as you said, 
we brought a lot of new subscribers into Strava last year and we want to keep them around. And the most important way to do that is to show them that you're continuing to invest in the proposition that they're subscribing to. And so that really means our product development is really oriented around building a subscription service that we say athletes are going to rave about. And that's really our standard. We really want people to be so excited about it that they're telling their friends, not just that you should join Strava, but that you should subscribe to Strava. I would say, you know, at the same time, we can't forget about our whole community and our free athletes because that is a source of motivation for many of our paid subscribers. You know, we're never going to have a model where 100% of our athletes are free. That's not where we're trying to go. And so we have to think about, sorry, 100% of our athletes are paid. You know, we have to think about that sort of broader network value. And so we do continue to think about investing in our free service as well and keeping those free athletes engaged because they're also the free people that join today are going to be the future subscribers of tomorrow. Yeah. I want to keep pulling on that. You've done a lot of work on the athlete life cycle or the member life cycle, starting from when they join as part of the community and kind of taking them through their relationship with you. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what that subscriber life cycle looks like at Strava and how you think about each of those phases and what you're measuring and trying to achieve? Sure. I would say it really starts with what we kind of call the growth life cycle, and that is actually bringing them in to the network. And so that's the first step of people join Strava. Typically, the vast majority join is free. There is an opportunity to start a trial from day one, but most people join is free. And our goal is to get them first and foremost uploading activities, which again, are our atomic unit and get them connected to other athletes. So because that's where the motivation comes from and that's where the, really the experience gets unlocked. So that's sort of like, those are the key things that we think about in terms of just activating an athlete on Strava. You know, as you move into the subscription side of it and sort of the subscription life cycle, we really think about it in terms of, yeah, we want to get them into a trial. That's the way we introduce most people to our subscription. We have people that organically subscribe as well, but the trial is a very effective way for us to get people into subscription because it does allow us then to activate them. And that's really about getting them to start to use the subscription features during those first 30 days, which is our typical trial period. And there we're really focused on, can we get them using subscription features in their first 14 days as a trial a trial athlete? We spent a lot of time thinking about that and measuring that. How many subscription features have they used in the first 14 days is an important metric for us. And that's really strongly correlated with whether they convert from their trial. So then now we consider them a subscriber. But, you know, we're really focused on that first year because, you know, as you know, in any subscription business, the first year is really that mark at which somebody is a real long-term subscriber. That first renewal period is the point at which we really acquired them because that's really, you know, after that, the retention tends to be really good. And so there, it's obviously, it's about keeping them engaged in our experience and particular subscription features, you know, during that period. You can't just focus on the end and trying to like, you know, wake them up, you know, when their renewal date is coming. You really have to get them continually focused on it. So we look at some pretty nuanced metrics, things like one we call paid days over L28, which is basically for any 28-day period, the number of days during that period that a subscriber used a subscription feature. So in an ideal world, you know, it would be 100% of those days or they would 28 out of 28 days. We're trying to move that metric up for it for any subscriber. And then the last stage, obviously, is hopefully they're new, but we really view it as a virtuous cycle. And so that's really about, can we get that subscriber to be an evangelist and to bring other people into our subscription. And there, I would say is we're still early in, in that part of sort of the life cycle journey for us. We have some new features that we've launched that are behind the paywall around the ability to challenge other athletes in a sort of smaller version of a challenge where you have to be a subscriber to participate. And so that's an example of a way that we're trying to bring people into the subscriber life cycle from other subscribers 
And we're going to be, you know, very much measuring sort of the way that that happens. But generally, the way we measure that sort of virility of subscription is by looking at the net promoter score of our subscription and seeing to what extent people who are subscribers, you know, are promoting our subscription when we ask them. Yeah, I appreciate when you talked about that last phase of encouraging evangelism and your work with group challenges, you know, people bringing their friends into the paid features. I appreciate the discipline that you apply to thinking about each stage and sort of the balance between tracking their likelihood or willingness to refer with actually creating features that are designed to support that behavior, that desirable behavior. And I think you guys have done a really good job of balancing those things, the metrics that you use to understand what's happening and how you're doing, and then creating features and kind of roadmaps in the app itself to guide people to get the value that they're paying for to achieve the goals that brought them in the first place, which I think is so important. I had one question when you spoke at the very beginning, you were talking about how you have both a free trial and a free membership. So, you know, you have this freemium model, so I can be free forever and get some really great value. And you have many people in your community that do just that, but you also have a free trial for the paid features. How do you think about the way those two elements work in your model with the goal of moving people into a paid subscription? So I think that they're related, but they're to some extent separate in the sense of like, if we don't activate somebody successfully as a free athlete and they're on the platform and they're connected to other athletes and engaged, their likelihood of taking a trial or converting in a trial or even being a subscriber at the end of the day, you know, when their renewal period comes up is not going to be there. So we do actually sort of view those as two separate ways of engaging with and activating our athletes. And that growth life cycle, if you will, of you know getting free athletes into the platform and engaging them operates sort of independently, if you will, of the subscription layer of getting somebody into a trial or actually getting them you know, to renew at the end of the day. Does that make sense? Yeah. I ask because it's a challenge that I know a lot of people that are participating today are facing where there might be a certain amount of value that you can get for free forever, but there's also benefits of the paid offering. And it can be confusing to somebody who's new to your organization to figure out what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just dive right into the paid trial or am I supposed to get acclimated first and understand the value and build some habits? So it's a question that I think a lot of organizations are facing. So I appreciate your insights there. So I wanted to ask you, you know, we have a global audience today, as you can see from the chat, and I know that they're appreciating your story because Strava is truly a global organization operating in virtually every country in the world. How do you build something global, particularly out of what is essentially a highly local location specific activity? I don't think we have like some secret sauce or playbook that I can say like, this is the magic. We've definitely benefited from a just inherent nature of Strava and the way we built it, that it's supposed to be better if your friends are on it. It's supposed to have virility in the core product itself. Generally, what we've seen is typically where we've grown internationally, there is some sort of fire that's been lit, not necessarily by Strava, although we try really hard to do that, but often by external factors. So two of our biggest markets that have been really successful were the United Kingdom or are the United Kingdom in Brazil. And both of those were markets that, you know, not coincidentally probably lit up for us after the Olympics occurred in both of those countries. And so there was definitely some element of people kind of getting excited about sport and the sports that we support related to those events. But we sort of try and take that initial fire 
And then we really try and accelerate it through our country marketing efforts. And there, I think it's our playbook, if you will, is really around how we use influencers in the community and people who are prominent athletes, not necessarily professionals. They could just be you know, somebody who's an organizer of a local club and is very well connected in a city like Paris, let's say, or London to propagate Strava out and to really try and use what we call our local broadcast network, which is literally hundreds of athletes in each of these countries, you know, to sort of spread the word of Strava through the way that they're engaging with their own community. So that's a really core part of our success locally or in, in, in geographies. And then the other piece of it is definitely we've seen a lot of success from the press and our media. And we have a really focused effort there. And one of the great things about Strava is we generate a tremendous amount of data, which is very interesting to the press for telling stories about what's going on with people and their active lives. And we also have these incredible athletes on Strava, everything from Tour de France professionals, including the people that win the Tour de France, all the way down to people who you know might not be professional athletes, but are doing amazing things in their athletic life as well. And those things can be really interesting to sort of amplify outside of Strava. And, and is definitely one of the ways that we've built word of mouth for Strava. Can you share an example of a data story? First of all, at the end of the year, we do something called Year in Sport, where we look back, we identify you know, the key trends that we're seeing on Strava. And that's something that we propagate out and share with the press. I would say, you know, in the last year, certainly we spent a lot of time looking at what we saw going on as a result of COVID and the way that people were behaving in their active lives. And that, I think, you know, resulted in a lot of really interesting stories in the earlier part of this year that sort of reflected back how people's behavior had changed pretty dramatically in a positive way <laughs> as a result of COVID. You talked about how you light a fire and how you build a community in a new market. But I also know that you think pretty hard about how to localize for culture, attitudes towards subscription, willingness to pay. And I know these are issues that a lot of people are facing as they enter new markets. How do you think about that? The payments, the willingness to pay, some of the more logistical challenges around particular regions? Certainly, from a subscription marketing point of view, we're moving towards much more of a local model of thinking about how do we introduce, promote, market our subscription to our athletes in a way that's like culturally relevant and aligned with the calendar in their country, because there's very much an athlete calendar in each of these countries that tends to move with the sports that are popular and obviously the climate and things like that. We were really trying to move towards more of a model where, at least within a specific region, we're thinking about the way that we market our subscription you know, very locally. I think the other Big opportunities around pricing, which is something that we're really working on today of localizing our pricing, because I would say quite honestly, like Strava's pricing is not actually very well localized. And we know that, you know, there's a lot of places in the world where actually we're overpriced quite candidly. I mean, there's places where we feel like it's just relative to purchasing power and, you know, the economy in those places, we're not charging a price that makes sense relative to how we would maximize our subscription, but actually build the value for our community or athletes. And then I think the last area, which is really interesting and we're still on the forefront is just thinking about the product experiences being localized. And there, it gets really interesting and pretty nuanced in terms of how we think about it. I'll give you one example, which is like in a country like Japan, there's a very popular format of running called Ekiden, which is essentially a relay race. I think it's like the most popular format of racing in Japan. And it's very popular, not just at the professional level, but all the way down to the high school level. And you can imagine, we think about like, this is really something that should be represented in Strava in a way that's actually reflective of what's going on. If people are in an Ekiden race, which is a relay race, we should show you their, their race and their activities in a way that they're aggregated together and you see what actually happened. That doesn't actually occur in Strava today, but we know that that would actually be something that would be really valuable in that specific market. But 
you know, it's not necessarily a format that's valuable outside of or focused outside of Japan. And so those are the kind of decisions we have to make of like, at what point do we actually make our product localized for that particular way that athletes are active in sport in that country? I'd love for you to share some advice, maybe advice for organizations that are built around community and on a social platform and balancing the need to grow active users with the need to convert subscriptions. What advice do you have for our listeners? Define clear principles around what's free and paid and really have a model that you're clear about. You know, understand what's contributing and necessary for like the core health of the network and the growth and engagement of the network. And then figuring out where you're adding value to what the members are contributing in terms of their participation in their content and how differentiated is that and can you charge for it? So I think that's sort of what we talked about at the beginning. I would say like, do not assume that's just because something is social or involves connecting people or competition or any of these sorts of things it has to be free. I think for a long time, Strava made that assumption. Things that were social in nature, you know, inherently had to be free. And I think we've realized that no, people actually will pay for these kinds of experiences. And I think you have to be clear, at least in Strava's case, that your focus really is on your subscription. Because I think we've seen there's a natural tendency in our product development, that if you don't tell people that we're focused on our subscription, their goal is going to be to get this thing in the hands of as many people as possible because they want to see people using the cool product or the cool feature they've built. And so like, if you're not being really clear, like we want to build for our subscribers, there's a natural tendency to build things, at least within the side of Strava, that are cool for athletes and get them in the hands of as many athletes as possible, which means don't charge for them. That's perfect. Can you tell us something about the churn rate of subscribers and successful ways to get the churn rate down? Probably the most important thing that we're focused on from a subscription business, from a subscription perspective. I think, as I said earlier, our approach to it is really about the engagement during the subscriber's term. And in other words, getting them to be active and engaged in the features that we know are correlated with retention. And so it's really focused on getting them to use features versus trying to intervene, as I said, at the end. Now, we do think there are opportunities, certainly, if somebody is canceling, we don't actually want to make it hard to cancel. We think that's an important signal to get. People want to cancel. But if somebody does ultimately cancel, I think you know there's definitely opportunities in terms of understanding why they canceled and how you win them back. And for us, that's actually as big an area as just trying to prevent somebody from churning. Because one of the nice things about Strava in particular is that because we have a network, people who cancel their subscription, or sorry, a free network, they don't leave Strava. They just become a free member. So they're still around. And so we have an opportunity to win them back in our subscription. Perfect. Next question. Do you offer rewards to your members who bring in new members? We don't today. In the early days of Strava, we did something like that. And it's something that not surprising, <laughs> we're definitely thinking about. It's a very fertile area. Wouldn't be surprised if you see something along those lines in the future. Have you identified an ideal minimum number of social connections for a healthy subscriber? And then the follow-up question, do you employ tactics to accelerate social connections to make it easier for people to find connections? Yeah, we do. It actually turns out because it's a vertical network, it's focused around sports. We don't find that you have to have a very large network to get the benefit of social motivation that comes from it. And so actually, we're really looking to get you connected to basically two or more. That's actually the goal. Now, once you get connected to two or more people and you're engaged, then we're, as you're, I think you're alluding to, we're obviously trying to grow your network. And we're very active in trying to use machine learning to understand who are the opportunities to connect you with other people in terms of what are the natural sort of paths to finding those people that you would want to connect with. And so we definitely 
continue to try and build people's networks. But the average network on Strava is, or follower group on Strava is like 20 people. It's not like a Facebook where you'd be having hundreds of people that you're following. Perfect. Which countries are the most active in the world using Strava data as the benchmark? Which countries are the most active in the world? I'm not sure I know the answer to that off the top of my head. <laughs> so I would have to say that's probably, I'd have to come back and my sense is I would not be surprised if it was Brazil, just based on what I do know about our data. But I don't think I can say off the top of my head definitively which country that is. <laughs> okay, last question. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the health and fitness sector developing and maybe what's a little speak of what's in store for Strava in the future, what we might expect? That's a big question. I mean, I think a really short answer to that would be we've used Strava very much as a platform and is sort of in the middle of it. Um, and that's what we're focused on is connecting athletes and connecting the broader ecosystem that's out there. And Strava, we want it to be the sort of the center of it. You know, we say our vision is for all the world's activities to live on Strava. If you think about the broader world, there's a lot of really interesting things going on, obviously, in terms of digital fitness at home with companies like Zwift. And those models are, I think, they're really interesting business models. They're sort of hardware, software combined models, but that's not our model. Our model is very much one that is sort of hardware agnostic. We like to be Switzerland in the middle and we want to play nicely and been very successful playing nicely with all these wonderful companies that people are using however they want to be fit. Thanks so much, David. That was David Lorsch, Chief Revenue Officer at Strava. This episode was recorded live at the FIP Direct-to-Consumer Summit, and I'm delighted to be able to share it with you here. For more about David and Strava, go to strava.com. For more about the summit and to access the other interviews with stories from The Economist, Tesla, and Nike, among others, go to d2c.global. And for more about my work with subscription and membership models, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com. You've been listening to the Subscription Stories Podcast. This is Robbie Kelman Baxter. If you love the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Mention this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews and we really want your feedback. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. Subscription Stories.